0: Our passage today is found in your bulletin. We're reading from Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, where Moses wrote this. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances, the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I am giving you, your son and your grandson. So that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. This is the Word of the Lord. Well, today uh, marks the final sermon in our summer series that we've titled Free to Flourish, God's Gift of the Ten Commandments. And we called the series Free to Flourish because of the way God introduces the Ten Commandments in verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20, where we read this, Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. These are the first audible words God uttered to the newly formed nation of Israel, as he established the Mosaic Covenant. And in this covenant, God is offering to set them free from tyranny in Egypt by being their king. And then he's explaining the conditions on which they'll remain free, right? He's revealing to them in the Ten Commandments, this is how to enjoy my rule and reign so that you won't merely be politically free, but you'll be spiritually and materially and relationally free as well. But this form of freedom doesn't sit well with us as Americans. After all, we established our country by declaring freedom from a monarchy and declaring our independence, stating that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The American notion of freedom, then, is freedom from constraints. Not only the constraints of the British monarchy, but all constraints. This ideal is articulated perfectly in the song that Billboard Magazine says defined the decade of 2010 to 2020. Any parents want to guess what that song was? It was Let It Go by Elsa, sung to Frozen, where she sings It's Time to See What I Can Do to Test the Limits and Break Through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. So how is this modern American notion of freedom working out for us? Is everybody thriving around here with no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free? No, in fact, mentally and socially and environmentally, we're falling apart. In October of 2020, Mental Health America released a report outlining nine months of data on behavioral health screenings and found that there was a 634% increase in anxiety screenings and there was an 873% increase in depression screenings. The Kaiser Family Foundation reported that substance abuse and alcohol use increased by 12% during the pandemic and then didn't taper off. Social scientists are now calling kids born after 2012 polars because they are growing up in a society defined by political polarization and the melting of the polar ice caps. In terms of the American ideal of expressive individualism, we're freer than we have ever been. And yet, in terms of happiness and overall well-being, we're in one of the worst spots we've ever been in. So what's going on? Uh, I like the way Tim Keller uh, explains our problem in his book, Every Good Endeavor, when he said, modern people like to see freedom as the complete absence of any constraints. But think of a fish. Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water, not air, it is free only if it is restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon even to live is destroyed. The fish is not more free but less free if it cannot honor the reality of its nature. The same is true with airplanes and birds. If they violate the laws of aerodynamics, they will crash into the ground. But if they follow them, they will ascend and soar. The same is true in many areas of life. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, those that fit with the realities of our own nature and those of the world. And this is why our Creator gave us these commandments. They're God's operating instructions for human flourishing. In our passage today, Moses is trying to make this crystal clear to the second generation of Israelites because their parents didn't believe it. Their parents saw all these miracles, and yet in the face of all these miracles, they reverted back into kind of an Egyptian mindset. And so they had to wander through the wilderness. And in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is presenting the commandments to the next generation just before they go in to the promised land. And this is what he says. This is the command. The statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you may follow them in the land you're about to enter and possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I am giving you, your son and your grandson, so that you may have a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, God's commandments are a gift that he gives us to set us free and to keep us free. Free from what? Well, free from the things that so easily entangle us, three in particular. The deceptive temptations of the evil one, the empty philosophies of a godless world, and our own sin. The first is the deceptive lies of the evil one. You and I have a spiritual enemy, right? one who predated us, who existed before humans were created, who hates our creator, and because he couldn't overcome him, He seeks to harm him by harming us. He hates us because we look like our creator. He hates the image of God in us. He would like to attack it and cause our creator pain. And how does he do that exactly? Well, he wants to captivate us so that we will do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 22-26, Paul says to Timothy... Flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know they breed quarrels. The Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. How does the evil one do that, right? How does he take us captive to do his will? He starts arguments is how he does it. He starts quarrels. He inflames the passions of our youth and causes us to begin to bite and devour one another. And how exactly does he accomplish that? Well, by having us fix our attention on worldly philosophies instead of on Jesus. Colossians 2.8. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. Every day when you pick up your phone, you're going to be tempted to begin to take the advice of the wicked and to start walking in the way sinners want you to walk as they sell you empty philosophies. To capture your attention and commodify it, right? That's what the social dilemma is. That's what the algorithms are trained to do. It's why it works, right? Why? Because, sadly, our sin nature wants it to work, right? What was the original temptation? It, the original temptation is you can be God. How? By eating the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Take this empty philosophy, take this worldly thing and make it the thing that makes you feel superior and great and prideful and right, and then start quarrels. And why do those work so well? Well Romans 6 tells us, Paul says, I'm using a human analogy because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you offered the parts of yourselves as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater lawlessness, so now offer them as slaves to righteousness, which results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced then from the things you're now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. So what's the solution? to our current decaying condition? How do we get back into the water of God's love so that we're free to flourish again? Well, verse four through six of our passage today tells us how. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. You see, if we are going to experience the full life that Jesus died to give us, the the life that our Creator created us to experience, we have to meditate on God's commands until they get from our heads down into our hearts. We have really got to chew on them. Hence our call to worship today. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, Psalm 1. Or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous for the lord watches over the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked leads to ruin you see the psalmist makes clear that if we're going to experience the full freedom god came to give us it takes effort it takes intent notice the downward trajectory of verse one our natural proclivity is to get on our phone in the morning and start taking the advice of the wicked and stand in the pathway of the sinners and then end up sitting in the company of mockers making fun of those idiots who don't know what we know. Right? Nietzsche called this the discourse of negation toward the outsider, which is that person's not even human. That person is evil. And so you erase God's image in them. You can no longer see God's image in them and you have contempt for them. That's when you know that Satan's got you. And once we do that, we're stuck because as Bob Dylan famously wrote, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm at OP so I can quote Dylan now and people know who I'm talking about. <laughs> this is on the front of your bulletin. You may be a construction worker working on a home. You may be living in a mansion or you may live in a dome. You may own guns. You might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan learned this from the Apostle Paul, who wrote in Romans 6, 16, don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? We either turn on our phones first thing in the morning and allow the evil one to captivate us with the empty philosophies of this world based on human traditions, or we start fighting against the current of our culture by taking our thoughts captive and fixing our eyes on Jesus. Paul explained how to do the latter in 2 Corinthians 10. For although we live in the flesh, We do not wage war according to the flesh since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what is our fight against? Our fight is against the way we think, right? We're demolishing the strongholds in our own brains, the way we've been programmed, the way we've been indoctrinated, the way in which the world keeps telling us that there's a better way to get things done than Jesus's way. Jesus's way takes too long, and it's too weak, and it's too foolish. So do this instead. And if Satan can really get you, I'll have you do this worldly thing instead in the name of Jesus. That way he gets like a double W. Right? Jesus gets defamed by your unbelief and you get deceived. And so, as we take these thoughts captive by meditating on the Word of God, what will we discover, right? When we begin to really chew on the Word of God and sink into the Word of God and meditate on the law of God, we'll discover what Paul discovered as he meditated on the Tenth Commandment, the commandment we looked at last week. Paul says this is what he discovered, Romans 7, 7 through 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. I would not have known sin if it weren't for the law. For example, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. All right, what's Paul explaining here? Well, when you start meditating on God's commandments, it's kind of like... Have you ever been in a hotel and you've turned on the bathroom light and it's like way too bright and you look at yourself in the mirror and you're kind of like, oh my gosh, how did I get this old, right? Like I am unattractive. Like I, I thought I was a good-looking person because I have these nice soft yellow lights in my bathroom, but here I'm like startlingly ugly, right? <laughs> um, and so that's really how the law of God works. Initially, it's kind of this mirror that shows you this important thing about yourself. You are the problem. You are the problem. And because you're the problem, you can't be the solution, right? So when we were going through these commandments, um, I'm sure one of them landed with you. The one that landed with me is don't bear false witness. Why? Because... Um, I want to think, oh yeah, I don't, I don't bear false witness until I started meditating on it and reading about it in the rest of the scriptures because I had to preach on it. I wasn't going to do a quiet time on it on my own. God had to kind of paint me into a corner and be like, oh, hey, you've got to preach on this this week. And what do I discover? Well, bearing false witness includes things like gossip, blame shifting, being defensive, uh, keeping a record of wrongs, um, being silent when you should speak, speaking when you shouldn't speak, right? And then I'm like, Oh my gosh, Um, I can't do this. I it's it's why we you know when we'll do officer training we take people through the sunship course and we assign people the tongue exercise right, which is try to control your tongue for a week according to God's revealed will and you're like, oh my gosh, it is excruciating to be humbled by this. But this is important because once the law does this, it causes us to ask. A really crucial question. Romans 7, 21 through 24. So I discovered this law. When I want to do good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. And so as we meditate on the Word of God, what it becomes very clear is that if we think that the law of God is a ladder that we're going to climb to God, that we're going to secure God's pleasure and blessing by being good enough for God, we're hosed because we have no arms and we have no legs, right? That is the situation. We are not climbing the ladder of the law of God to blessing. That's not the way that's going to work. We are powerless to do that. And it, it begs this question, All right, well, then who will save me? Who will save me from me? Well, has there ever been a person who resisted Satan's offer to give him the whole world and used his freedom to serve God by loving his neighbor as himself and laying his life down for us? Well, yeah, one, right? He's called in the Word of God, the righteous one. There's only ever been one in the whole history of humanity. And this is what he did in the face of temptation in Matthew four. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, Oops, I lost my spot. Yep, there. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So how did Jesus do that, right? How did Jesus worship the Lord our God and serve him only? He did it by perfectly keeping the law. He was the righteous one, and rather than keeping the blessing of inheriting the earth for himself that that life deserved, he willingly sacrificed his life as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world so that the meek could inherit the earth, so that he could give it to whoever was humble enough to admit, I don't deserve it, Jesus, you're my only hope. And that's why Paul says this in Romans 8, for what the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering In order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See, this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this God did it. Right? Done. It is finished. God made it possible by sending his one and only Son, who perfectly kept the law and laid down his life so that he could ascend to the throne of God above and give you his Spirit. Once Christ Himself takes up residence in your heart, then by faith in Him, because of God's grace, you can actually begin to keep the commandments. It becomes really possible for you. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 3.3, you show that you're Christ's letter delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. All right, this is what we're going to sing about in a minute, which is this is what turns duty into choice. It's what makes it possible by dependence on the Holy Spirit for God to begin to write the law on your heart so that you actually want to keep these commandments. And you have the power to begin to keep these commandments, but it's a power that comes from God. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 5. He says, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters... Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another in love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. So that you do not do what you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. This fact is what caused Augustine in his confessions to pray this way Give what you command, O Lord, and then command whatever you will. Right? That's the nature of surrender. That's what it looks like to surrender yourself to God. God, you're my only hope. Give what you command and command whatever you will. I trust you. I'm going to walk in the light of the good news of the gospel and the way that you have laid out. Remember, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. You don't get the Jesus life unless you do the Jesus truth, the Jesus way, right? And we have this weird enlightenment thing going on that we want to think, oh, no, I just need good theology. No, you don't. You need good theology, And you need to repent so that you can experience the fruit of the Spirit that comes when you depend on the Spirit to do in and through you what you cannot do for yourself. This is what we're going to sing as a song of response. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, turns the slave into a child and duty into choice. So what does this look like practically, right? Practically, how does God want us to live? Well, he tells us in in 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That's what a living faith looks like. That's what Christ in you wants to do through you. He wants to do that to you and through you. And it's how Christ shows up in a broken and fallen world. When we ask the Father to lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one by making it possible for us to forgive those who have trespassed against us as we patiently wait for God to who gave us his son to along with him give us all things. That's what it practically looks like. Now, only as we do that will we have something to talk to our kids about. Look at verse 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Um, Most of us are tempted to write them on the city gates before we write them on our hearts. That's not the way it works. Our men's retreat speaker for the Cotswold and South Insights was different than you guys had. We had to go to different men's retreats because we've gotten too big now. You guys had Bill McCutcheon, who's great. We had Cameron Cole. Cameron is uh, a Hope original. He was part of Hope in the first year, and then he went on to become uh, the head of Rooted, the Gospel Coalition's youth ministry wing. And in that role, Cameron uh, told us at our men's retreat, When kids who've grown up in the church decide to walk away from the faith, often they'll call him to talk about it. So they'll explain why they're deconverting. And this was the devastating thing he said at our men's retreat. He said, I just want to be super clear about this. Your kids are not leaving Christianity because of what they're being taught in public school. Your kids are not leaving Christianity because of what they found on the internet. Your kids are leaving Christianity because you do not love your enemies and you do not pray for those who persecute you, and there's no visible difference between you and your non-Christian neighbor. They can't tell anything different about you. And so that's what's causing them to question the veracity of Christianity, your anger, your quarreling, your tendency to use discourse of negation toward the outsider to call those people the problem, them. And so the solution is very simple. Uh, you're always going to be the most influential person in your child's life, period, whether they like it or not. Uh, I, or maybe you've had this experience. Have you had this experience yet where you get up and say something, or you uh, turn on the mirror, you know, the light in your bathroom, and you're like, when did my dad get here? When did, I don't, when did Harry Upton appear? <laughs> Apparently, he is alive and well. Because I literally am doing things he does. Like he does this, right? He pinches his hand. I I don't know why I do this. I just do. It's just natural, right? And so the the simple truth is if you want to be influential in the life of your child, repent. You be the chief repenter in your home, and you will be gospel gravity whether they like it or not. My mom converted at age 56. And when we were talking about it later, she said, yeah, I was kind of in this weird space. My mom was a believer, and I'd rejected kind of the fundamentalist faith of her, my youth. You became a believer um, and rebelled against me, right, by becoming kind of fundamentalist. But as y'all both grew in in grace over time, you became more sanctified, and it ended up in this weird space where you and Holly were outliving me, and my mom was outdying me because of the way that God was changing you and your friends. The gospel just became very visible to me uh, until the point that I I couldn't kind of get away from it. Um, Here's the truth. Um, God wants you to grow in freedom, right? He wants you to be influential And he wants you to talk about this stuff with your kids as it flows out of the overflow of your heart. Notice the movement, right, of this verse. Um, It says, what I want you to do is I want you to bind them as a sign on your hand and put them as a symbol on your forehead, then write them on the doorpost of your house, and then put them on your city gates. So it goes, heart, hand, hand, home city, okay? So, you've got to get it first, and then you've got to live it in private, and then out of the overflow of that, you will become salt and light in a dark and tasteless world, and your life will flourish, which will cause your family members and then your neighbors to be curious about the purpose and peace that makes it possible for you to be gentle and not quarrelsome and not argumentative, but to love your enemies as yourself and pray for those who persecute you. And so this is what Moses says to us today. This is the command, the statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you may follow them in the land you're about to enter and possess Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all his statutes and commands I'm giving you, your son and your grandson, so that you may live a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would come and be merciful to us That you would grant us the grace of humility so that we might become the meek who will inherit the earth, not because we deserve it, but because you do. Uh, Thank you that you love us and that you laid your life down for us. Help us to trust you enough to fix our eyes on you as the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.